So just to give you a little bit of a sense of the format of the day, there'd be some periods of teaching, uh, some pause moments for any reflections or questions you have. Um, this afternoon, I hope to be able to uh, encourage you to participate in a breakout uh, group. It's, it's not always, um, well, it's unusual to be teaching in this format, although it has become more and more normalized. But I, I think when we teach in this format it, it, and when we learn in this format, it, it's very important that it's a participatory journey, that it's not just me teaching from the front and, and you kind of just being passive in the background. We want you to encourage you to, to really reflect upon what you hear. What does this mean for you? You know, what questions does it raise? You know, the, the Buddha speaks about these steps of insight that some of you are familiar with, that first we listen to the teaching because this is what helps us to raise those questions about our life, about what it means to be human, you know, to to listen to the teachings, to, to see if we have a, an intellectual agreement with them. Do they, do they make sense? Or do, do, do they not really land in our own experience? And, and then the next step of insight would be to, to take the teachings and to experientially explore them inwardly, in, in the body, in the mind, in our lives. And then the next step of insight is about embodiment, to live our understandings, to live in the light of what we understand to be valuable, to be worthy, to, what it is that makes a difference, makes a difference in our own lives and makes a difference in the world. And that is our, our theme of today, is this theme of embodiment, which is, I think, really quite a, a big question and a big theme, but probably one that's quite important to us all. And I want to look at embodiment or reflect upon embodiment in several different layers or several different dimensions. And the first of these would be the question of, what does it really mean to inhabit this body fully? Because that's the starting place of embodiment. How we are, how we land, how we connect with this body that we do inhabit, but not always so consciously. What is the embodiment of the attitudes that we find to be worthy, to be valuable, to, to make a difference, that transform actually our lives. What it means to embody understanding, to embody insight, recognizing that understanding or insights are, are not something we have. They're actually what we live and what we practice. So when I first started to reflect on this theme some years ago of embodiment, I went first to the dictionary. Look at the definition, 
the dictionary definition of embodiment. And what I came across was really quite simple, it seemed at first, the visible or tangible expression of a quality. The visible or tangible expression of a quality. In the Tibetan tradition, there's a, a teaching that says, this mind, this body, does the bidding of the wholesome and the unwholesome. Used wisely, this mind, this body, takes us to liberation. And used unwisely, this mind, this body, ties us to cycles of distress and confusion. When I first began to practice in the Tibetan tradition, in a, in a community of Tibetan refugees in the early 70s, there were many things that touched me. But I think what touched me so deeply were the qualities that were embodied in that community. The qualities of resilience, the qualities of forbearance, the qualities of generosity, generosity, the qualities of compassion, and the quality of joyfulness. And when I came across these people and saw how they lived and how they interfaced with the world, after all they had been through and all they had suffered, it became very clear to me, you know, that these folks knew something that I didn't. And they knew something that I didn't know, but something that was obviously deeply inspiring, um, showing the possibility of a way of living uh, amidst really difficult circumstances and conditions, where there was still shining through all of that, this sense of collectedness, um, depth, openness, uh, inclusivity and understanding. The question of embodiment, in my understanding, really lies at the heart of every spiritual life and path. It's a question that lies at the heart of all kind of uh, mindfulness teaching and contemporary mindfulness teachings. I, I used to teach on graduate programs in universities where people were doing master's programs in, in mindfulness. And I'm pretty sure that this was the only degree offered where people could fail on the question of embodiment. You know, that it wasn't just about your learning or your skill set. It was about what you embodied. This was quite hard to explain to the university. Uh, leaders, that this actually really was a crucial question. And I, I think it's a question that concerns us all, because it, it speaks to our aspirations and longings as human beings. I mean, the question of embodiment speaks to, to what we value, that the kind of relationships that we form with ourselves and others speaks to how we live our lives how we are living our lives just now. 
I would almost go so far as to say that embodiment is a is a synonym for nibbana or liberation, the fruition of this path. And I, I think embodiment for me has another definition to it. it. It's really about the seamlessness of our intentions, our understandings, our values, and their manifestation in every area of our lives. It's about the seamlessness of all of that, really shaping how we live, how we think, how we speak. It's a high bar, you know? This, this is not an easy thing for us to find that seamlessness between our intentions, our values, our understandings, and how we speak and the choices we make and the acts we engage in. And then the, the reality is that in every moment of our lives, we embody something. Right now, we are all embodying something. We embody something in our thoughts, in our words, and in our acts. And everyone we encounter in our lives is equally in every moment embodying something, moment to moment, through their acts, their, their words, their thoughts, their ways of being that affect us deeply, just as we affect others deeply through what we embody. I think that the people we, we most admire for their capacity to affect change in this life, in this world, the people that we admire for their commitments are people who embody their deepest, most noble intentions and values. People who are undiverted, undiverted from that path of embodiment. I think we're inspired by people like Mandela or Dalai Lama because, or the Dalai Lama because of their embodiment, because they exemplify the, the courage and the kindness and the compassion, the perseverance that they value in themselves and others. We admire and I think are inspired by the congruence between the values they embrace and the words and the acts that express them. I think we'd be quite surprised and disappointed if the, the Dalai Lama emerged one morning suddenly encouraging violence or hatred, or you know, if Mandala had chosen a different path of, of harm. But we're also deeply affected and afraid of those we encounter who embody rage, who embody greed, hatred, and self-absorption. We are not immune, we are not in, invulnerable to those imprints. We feel the impact of the words and acts that are born of hatred or born of ill will or born of agitation. We feel the impact through the words and the acts and the, and the kind of footprint that those words and acts leave in our lives and on the world. I think for, for any of us who are really dedicated to understanding what it means to live an awakened and conscious life, then the quality of embodiment really matters. 
And we see that there are, there are two dimensions to living an awakened life. I think one is an inner contemplative dimension where, where we learn to listen closely to our hearts and minds and, and learn the lessons that our life continues to deliver about what causes distress and alienation. Learning the lessons of how struggle and disconnection are born and learning the lessons of what leads to the end of distress. Listening inwardly to our own world, our own inner world, we learn about the impact, the lessons of kindness, of compassion, of awareness, of mindfulness, of integrity on our own consciousness. We learn how the, our consciousness is shaped so differently in the light of kindness and compassion than it is shaped in the light of ill will or anxiety or hatred. Listening inwardly, we learn about the impact of fear, of personal belief systems that we have about ourselves, beliefs, beliefs in insufficiency. We learn about the impact of the patterns that we carry. We learn a lot, a lot of lessons about the outcomes of mindlessness in our lives and in the lives of others. Life keeps teaching us these lessons. And those lessons are really, I think, for us, the beginning of a path. Developing and training our own minds and hearts in that which ennobles our lives. Having the courage to relinquish the habits and the patterns of confusion that lead to distress and bring affliction to others. I think our, our own sense of aspiration, values and sense of direction is really forged in the lessons of our life. And this is where it needs to be forged. What do we aspire to? What do we hold to be most worthy, most valuable? What are the intentions that lead us to live a, a, a blameless life? What are the intentions that ennoble and bring dignity to our lives? Now, the, the second dimension of the path is concerning itself essentially with what we do and how we do all that we do. It's concerned with how we engage with the world, the, the kind of footprint each of us leaves with, with what we do and with what moves what we do. And, and I know all of us in these times of the climate emergency are really needing to kind of reassess how we live. You know, what do we need? What is essential? What is inessential? What are the small gestures of care? that make a difference. And then the second dimension is concerned with how we engage with the world, the kind of footprint we leave, with our thoughts and words and acts that splinter into thousands of consequences 
many of which we do not even see. This second dimension of the path is concerned with how we live this life we have, how we live with, with those we love and care for, how we live with those that we struggle with, and, and how we live with the many beings that we don't even see. It's a dimension of the path that is truly concerned with embodiment, recognizing that in every moment of our day, whether silent or speaking, whether acting or still, whether we're alone or together with others, we are always practicing something. We are always embodying something. This is the dimension of the path where we learn about a lot about healing dissonance. Healing dissonance. Practicing exemplification rather than fragmentation. Reflecting on the ways our lives are lived in the light of our deepest values and aspirations. It's a dimension of the path that's concerned with developing a, a quality of congruence between our understanding, our values and aspirations, and then how we live them, how we speak them, how we interfa interface with the world. It's so easy to be forgetful, isn't it? You know, it, it's so easy to become almost a kind of amnesia that often our, our deepest values get swept away in the kind of you know, surges of patterns or surges of reactivity, how we become forgetful. And yet, as we become more awake, those moments of forgetfulness, we actually see them. We, we actually know them. This is something to be healed. I think we all know the value of integrity, of, of honesty and generosity, and how, how we exemplify all of those. We know the values of kindness, compassion, empathy, and how they can be manifested in our thoughts, our words, our actions. We know from our life experience the ways in which self-centeredness or grasping, obsession, causes only confusion and struggle. It raises a question, you know, do we consciously act and live and think in accordance with that understanding, with a commitment to unbinding? You know, the, these two dimensions of the path, the inner contemplative, listening, questioning dimension, and the expressive engagement dimension, these two dimensions of the path are not hierarchical. You know, I, I would suggest we don't have to be wait, we don't have to wait until we're fully awakened and fully compassionate and fully generous before we begin to live in the light of our deepest aspirations and understandings. Knowing that life is ungraspable, changing and uncertain. We don't have to wait for the moment that all ill will has vanished before we begin to live with a, a commitment to kindness 
and generosity. I think inner development and, and embodiment go hand in hand. It's interesting how in, in the Buddhist tradition, you know, that how the whole process of transformation is approached. Because the Buddha was not that concerned with how we feel. The Buddha was deeply concerned with what we do. And, and so you, you'll see in the Buddhist tradition, there, there, there are many, many behavioral guidelines for living together harmoniously. You know, we, we have the ethical guidelines, you know, of, of, of you know, speaking, you know, of, of generosity, of not taking, of speaking truthfully, of not harming. It's actually all about not harming. We have the ethical guidelines, you know, and they're not rules, you know, they're not sort of these blank rules to observe. But what the Buddha suggested is that if you put these ethical guidelines in place, these guidelines of non-harming, that no matter, you might not feel them, but if you commit to them, they will change how you feel. They will change how you feel. Because you will begin to see experientially their value and their imprint. And they also said sometimes it happens, you know, that there's a, an inner transformation, a deepening of understanding and kindness and compassion, and that will, will emerge and, and be manifested in how we live and engage. But it's this twofold process, this inward and outer process of change. We would, I think, wish uh, to live an embodied life, a, a life where there is this seamlessness between our values and understandings and the ways that we think, act, and speak. And I feel that there's a humility in recognizing that embodiment is a path. It is a journey. And sometimes it's really a challenge. It's so important that we don't sort of engage in magical thinking to, to believe that we just need to sit more or do more retreats. You know, and then we're going to get to that place of, you know, real embodiment and seamlessness. A lot of this is about what happens when we open our eyes and engage with the world. And the, the Buddha never just spoke about meditation practice. The Buddha always spoke about a path, about a path of living an awakened life. And again, it's so important not to put that in capital letters, you know, that that's somewhere in the future, that's somewhere distant. You know, it's about now. About how awakened our life feels just now. I think that for many of us, this, this question of embodiment is, is a challenging and sometimes even a deeply troubling question. You know, if you travel on the underground in London, you know, you, you hear the voice that comes over that says, mind the gaps, mind the gaps. You know, you see it written on the platforms, mind the gaps. And we can be, and, and there's, you know, there's a value in this because if you don't mind the gaps, you're going to fall down the gap. But we can be so painfully aware of the gaps and places of dissonance that feel very real and present in our lives. 
I've heard people say they, they thought that they were much happier before they began to practice. And why, why is that? And I think it's because we become so much more attuned and sensitive to those gaps. And they disturb us. But that, that's not a negative disturbance. You know? I think this is a disturbance to welcome when we see the gaps. Because this is our classroom. This, this is our curriculum. We can be painfully aware of the places of dissonance, real and present in our lives. We deeply value kindness. And yet, isn't it true that thoughts of ill will and judgment arise? We can value compassion deeply and find it so difficult to, to look into the eyes of a homeless person or, or we're just too busy for empathy. We, we know that the toxic power of craving, the never enough mind. Oh, but then that second plate of food looks so tempting or that fantasy looks so entertaining. And in a way we think, well, why not? You know, this is a kind of benign activity. You know, I'll, I'll just have a, you know, the second plate of food. I'll just have this little bit of fantasy. It's actually not benign because it feeds that pattern. How many times we might wake up in the morning with the intention to be present and to be mindful and then moments later find ourselves obsessing or fantasizing or forgetful. How often we have the intention, the real genuine intention to, to speak with kindness. But as it's written in the book Tofu Roshi, by a student, I open my mouth and samsara jumps out. I open my mouth and habit patterns jump out. We resolve to, to wake up in the morning or, you know, sit in the evening. Oh, but there's a really good movie on television. You know, we want to be focused, but we find ourselves almost infatuated with distractedness. We know that we cannot grasp the ever-changing, the, in, the instability of life or our inability to control the world of conditions. But it doesn't stop us trying. It doesn't stop us trying. We find our, ourselves rehearsing, uh, you know, strategizing for the perfectly protected, safe life, um, trying to secure all things. I remember years ago when, uh, when we took out a mortgage and we had, I had to buy life insurance and this insurance salesman came to my house and, and I sat really quite astounded as he went through this long list of all of the disasters that could befall me in my life. You know, what happens if your partner dies? You know, what happens if you have a fire? You know, what happens if you get Alzheimer's? You know, what, what will happen if you've got a chronic illness? And I, I, it is going on and on and on this list of disasters. And he says, but you can insure yourself against all of this. You know, you can insure yourself against all of this. It's, it's a kind of fantasy world, isn't it? Even though it's uncomfortable, I think there's something quite valuable about and real and honest and human about reflecting 
on the areas of dissonance in our lives and our reactions to that awareness. You know, where are the gaps? This is actually what brings something really alive to our path. Because we really know that this is our intentional classroom. I think dissonance speaks to the gaps, the places where there's discrepancy between our understanding, intentions, aspirations, and their embodiment. And it sounds like such bad news. And sometimes when you reflect on dissonance in your life, it, it's kind of very easy to be judgmental or despairing, you know, to feel like I have the imposter syndrome, you know, that, oh, yes, I'm, I'm a meditation practitioner, but not feeling like we've really landed, you know, feeling like we've got the, this kind of hidden world that we don't want people to see. I think sometimes when we, we become more aware of dissonance, it, 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 it's easy to have a sense of failure or impossibility. But it's not actually bad news. I, I think the Buddha so clearly recognized that there is a tension to living a more wakeful life. You know, there is a tension to it. You know, the, 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 it brings discomfort, you know, the, there's a tension in, in trying to, to not be so bound by, you know, patterns of a lifetime sometimes it feels like. You know, there's a tension involved in, in coming out of that sense of, of being governed and bound. And, you know, meditation, is, uh, this path is not just about kind of sitting down and relaxing. You know? it, it's about recognizing there is a tension, but it is a creative tension. We could recognize this. This is where we practice. Our path is really about healing the gaps healing discrepancy, to free ourselves of dissonance. This is not something new. I think anyone in any time, in any culture, embarking on an endeavor to live an awakened, embodied life is soon shorn of romanticism. Shorn of romanticism. You know, I think many people, when they begin their practice, you know, there's a kind of honeymoon period, you know, of, you know, some like lovely, sweet calm and happiness and well-being. And then guess what? The marriage begins. And we're short of romanticism. The romanticism that says, you know, we just need to make a little effort, have good intentions, and the mind is transformed. I think... We all recognize that the deeply embedded emotional and psychological habit patterns that can simply dominate our lives. We see the impulses and the reactivity that can hold so much power and lead us to places very far from where we want to be. This is a, a pathway, I think, that asks a lot of us courage, perseverance, and, and the really genuine willingness to look at the questions of dissonance and embodiment and to learn how to, to liberate the moment. To learn how to liberate the moment. This is a very present moment question. 
So as I mentioned in the beginning, there's, there's three areas of embodiment I'd primarily like to reflect on. What it means to be an embodied human being, to inhabit this body fully. I think this is a, a bigger question of what does it mean to inhabit this life fully? The second domain of the embodiment of attitudes, uh, qualities that transform our hearts and lives. And the third domain of the embodiment of understanding. So what does it mean to inhabit the body with mindfulness and insight? This is what the Buddha encourages in the Satipatthana Sutta. To inhabit this body with mindfulness and insight. I think culturally and spiritually, there's not always been an encouragement to do this. I mean, historically, in many spiritual traditions, the body has often been regarded as, as impure, as an obstacle, as a source of attachment, something to transcend something to transcend. And we see how much that pattern prevails in different forms in our own cultures at this time. You know, the mechanisms that are used to get out of the body, you know, wh whether it, it's addictions, whether it's uh, eating disorders, whether it's uh, drugs, whether it's, it's just a pursuit of forgetfulness how to transcend this body. Today, there's so many people, understandably, that find it difficult for many reasons to inhabit their body. If you live with chronic pain, the body doesn't feel like a place you want to be. If you, have a, uh, if you live with illness or, or, or you live with historical trauma, the body doesn't feel a place to be. There can be fear about that, fear of encountering somatic memories. So there's a tendency to dissociate, to disconnect from the body or to feel aversion for the body. We see the body as self, as me, as who I am. I think we often don't even appreciate the depth of this until somehow we suddenly encounter, you know, a major physical event, you know, a sudden illness or, you know, diagnosis. And then you feel the body as self, the body as me. We have preoccupations with appearance, with health. And very often we're just in the habit of simply neglecting or being indifferent to the body. You know, that quote from James Joyce that Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. We often actually live a long distance from the body. Uh -huh. We're encouraged often in our educational systems, our social systems, to give primacy to the mind more important or simply more predominant on a moment-to-moment -moment level. The separation between mind and body 
is the primary area of disconnection and dissociation in our lives. The split between mind and body. And I wonder how often we are aware of this. Now, all of mindfulness practice is rooted in mindfulness of the body. The Buddha says, you know, when there's no mindfulness of the body, there is no mindfulness at all. If you look at the Satipatthana Sutta, the primary discourse on establishing mindfulness, there is a huge section on establishing mindfulness on the body. You know, very short sections on establishing mindfulness in the mind and feeling tones and process. The big one is the body. Because this is the embarkation point for everything. This is a launch pad of all of the deepest understandings we can come to. The separation and disconnection, the fracture between mind and body is inevitably a separation from this present moment. That separation actually is an open door to the arising of impulse and habit. So the open door to the arising of impulse and unhelpful habits. When we don't inhabit this body fully, we rarely inhabit this moment or this life fully as it is. And what causes that disconnection? And what causes that fracture? And I think this is so important to, to check this out for ourselves. You know, what is happening in those moments when we begin to sense that, that fracturing between mind and body? Sometimes we're just forgetful. Sometimes we're too busy. Sometimes we're just lost in thought or obsession or planning or rumination. When emotional and psychological impulses um, dominate consciousness, how often you see the body simply disappearing from awareness? The body's consciousness has just faded into the background when predominant mind states or emotions are foregrounded. We get lost in our mental states and all their contents. I think mindfulness of the body, our somatic experience. It's not just about developing a moment-to-moment -moment awareness of sensation. You know, there are so many meditation styles that are, are geared towards establishing mindfulness in the body. And, you know, in the early years of my practice, I, I trained in, in one of those styles, you know, where, you know, there was a lot of body sweeping going on. And, you know, I was really good at this. You know, I hit all the markers. You know, I was a great body sweeper. You know, uh, you know, you know I could have got an A star in this. And it came to, came to me at some point that I actually wasn't learning anything anymore. You know, what was I learning? I was great technically, had some lovely experiences, but what was I learning? It's not just about developing a moment-to-moment -moment awareness of sensation. It's about what is being learned. You know, the, the Buddha said that everything that there is to be understood will be understood within the length of this body. 
Walt Whitman wrote that everything we have ever done, everything we do, everything we will do, we do within this body. What we see when we establish mindfulness of the body is that there's there's a kind of landing. You know, there's a returning from the realms of fantasy, obsession, rumination, planning. We come to the body and there's a quality of landing, of returning. And it's always a present moment experience. In this moment just now, I am not having yesterday's headache. I'm not having tomorrow's toothache. It's always right now. This present moment recollection. And as the Buddha encouraged, whether standing or sitting, whether walking or lying down, whether coming or going, establishing mindfulness in the body. Personally, I'm a big fan of the coming and going. You know, I consider these the in-between moments. The in-between moments. You know, if you think about being on retreat, you know, you sit and you walk. What about the in-between moments? You know, your lunch times or the transitions uh, from a one posture to another. You know, the in-between moments, the coming or going. And we really so much sense the challenge of this, don't we? Um, and yet every moment of recollecting the body is a direct antidote to habit, to, to the habits of disconnection, the, the habit of being lost in our ruminations about the past, our fantasies and fears about the future, and our preoccupations in the present. The, the Buddha referred to this as the one fortunate attachment. The one fortunate attachment. When he was once asked, you know, what, why are your nuns and monks so radiant? He says it's because they're not leaning backwards into the past, into what has already gone by. Because they're not leaning forward into the future, into what is yet to come. And because they're not lost in preoccupations in the present. And this is why they are so radiant. I think, you know, my sense is that every moment that we return to the body, we're learning to soften. I think we're learning to undo some of the most powerful habit patterns of our lives that lead too often. I think, to confusion, struggle, to creating and recreating patterns of psychological and emotional pain. What else are we learning within the body? Learning to be present in the body teaches us much about this interrelated mind-body process. And the big word here is process or process. As we learn to embody the, uh, embody the body more fully, we, we come to see how transparent the divide is between mind, heart, and felt somatic experience. 
Mind and body are constantly sending signals to each other and shaping each other. You know, if the mind is dull, you know, the body's collapsing and the body collapsing is making the mind more heavy. You know, it, if, if emotion we feel very, very sad, you know, the body again begins to sort of shrivel and shrink. And that sends messages back to the mind. If we're angry, think of that one. What that does to the body, the tightening, the contracting, the, the tension, and how that in turn is feeding the anger. Think about when we're anxious and our shoulders raise and the body starts to become more defended and how that sends messages back to the mood of anxiety, strengthening and reinforcing it mindfulness of the body we begin to read our emotional psychological patterns within this body we begin to sense the body of sadness or the body of despair or the body of anger or the body of anxiety and we're taking the fuel out of that closed feedback loop of mind and body sending signals that reinforce and strengthen patterns of distress. Sensing this body, the mood of the body, the moodedness of the body. We stop, ex that exchange of signals comes to an end. And the distress begins to soften. They have a place of refuge a place of anchoring. And we learn to investigate. And it's very much a movement into the language of process. You know, what does, what does the body of sadness feel like? Oh, it's something that's changing. It has so many different layers. You know, what does the body of anxiety feel like? Well, look, this is anxious over here, but this is not anxious at all. You know, and this is how anxiety is, is arising. This is how it's impacting. And we move from the language of I am into something else. Where we can say that sadness is happening. Uh, fear is happening. This is a much more accessible doorway than those thoughts and beliefs that say, you know, I'm angry or I'm depressed, you know, or I'm anxious. Part of establishing the body, mindfulness in the body and inhabiting this body fully, which is the starting point of all embodiment, is also mindfulness of how we use our sense doors, our eyes, our ears, our sense of touch, taste, smell, and our mind. And we see how much our, our mind and emotional states are uh, are giving uh, how our mind and emotional states are are determining how we use our sense doors. You know, if, if the mind is very agitated, the sense doors get get very busy, don't they? You know, we're looking, we're we're on alert, we're hyper vigilant. If the mind is feeling very very kind of insufficient or lacking, how we use our eyes almost like a kind of appetite of a hunger. You know, what can I make contact with that's going to excite me or satisfy me? These sense doors can be vehicles of discontent, vehicles of lack, vehicles of insufficiency. 
that are prowling the world looking for relief. These same sense doors can be vehicles of compassion and sensitivity and appreciation. This is such an important part of inhabiting this body fully, to be really sensitive to what our, our sense doors are, are embodying. You know, what they're transmitting, how they're being primed, how they're being used. You know, in, in one of the description, in one of the images that Buddha uses to describe how our world of experience is constructed, there's this image of a house with five open windows and an open door. And the five open windows represent the traditional five sense doors of sight, sound, uh, taste, touch, um, smell. And the, the sixth sense door is the open door of the house, the mind, the mind. And, and the Buddha just so clearly illustrates that through those open windows and open door, there flows the world of sensory impressions that are part of our moment-to-moment -moment lived experience. You know, we're never away from this. Every moment in our lives, you know, we're, we're being flooded actually with sensory impressions right now. And they, they flood in through the sense stars. And flooding out through the sense stars is our world of response or our world of reactivity. Flowing in is the bare sensory material and flowing out can be all of our habit patterns or flowing out can also be our compassion, kindness, mindfulness, appreciation. And what the, the Buddha suggested, of course, is that we seat mindfulness on the windowsills and the door sill, both as a way of protecting our own hearts and minds, that we don't feel flooded or swamped or overwhelmed, that, that we know a level of um, circumspection, a level of carefulness that protects the well-being of our heart and mind. But seating mindfulness on the windowsill and the doorsill is also a way of protecting the world, of guarding the world, so that what flows out is not that which undermines well-being or creates harm, but that what flows out really contributes to well-being. As we learn to inhabit the body fully, mindfully, there are so many lessons we learned. Lessons that are meant to transform our hearts, to, to heal dissonance and to heal discrepancy thinking. You know that this gap, this very primary gap between how things are and how we think they should be. You know, that, that gap between how things are and how we think they should be, that gap is an ocean of tears. It's an ocean of tears, but it's a gap we encounter, can encounter so frequently in our lives, how other people should be, how we should be, how our bodies should be, how life should be. It's so easy to get lost in those shoulds, and it's almost like a kind of self-inflicted wound. I think learning to contemplate the body as the body 
is the doorway to understanding that the first of the noble or ennobling truths, the universal law central to all of our lives, dukkha, that I, I would translate as vulnerability, I would not translate it as suffering. Because we certainly do have periods of great suffering in our life. And we also know sometimes that suffering comes to an end. Whereas vulnerability is, is simply, I prefer that translation because it, it points to something that's just part of being human. It's just part of being human. You know, as, as human beings, we are, we are vulnerable to the pain of pain. You know, illness, sickness, it, it, vulnerability, and it, it's concerned with our willingness to, to embrace our mortality. Um, we are born, and our lives and all of life follows a certain trajectory, doesn't it, towards our death. And in between those two points, we're all going to have our own measure of frailty and illness of loss and unwelcome change. We know this. We know this. We see this written within our own bodies. We see this written on all the bodies around us, those that we love and those that we struggle with and the many we don't know. But it's one of our primary areas of dissonance and dis disassociation. To know this and not want to know it. When the Buddha speaks about a vidya or ignorance, he doesn't speak about this as a, as a judgment or a lack of knowledge or a personal insult. The Buddha speaks about ignorance as just not knowing how things actually are. But he says there's another part of ignorance, which is not wanting to know. And sometimes it feels to me that that second part of not wanting to know is so central to perpetuating pain, to perpetuating distress. We know about the vulnerability of this body, and sometimes we want to pretend it's not so. I think this pandemic has taught us many things, that we, we are not invulnerable, that we are not invulnerable, that no one is invulnerable. And we see written into the story of our bodies, you know, we one day we may be the one in the wheelchair. One day we may be the one who doesn't think clearly anymore. One day we're likely to be the one who, who loses their independence, who is, who is ill, who may lose their mobility. And we will be the one who will die. It's a simple truth that inhabiting the body guides us to learn. And yet sometimes it's a truth that we resist with such ferocity. You know, Stephen Levine, who wrote, many books on living and dying. He spoke about teaching a workshop once and he started his talk with asking the group a question, who in this room is going to die? And he said it took really a long time before anybody raised their hand. That we could look around us and say, oh, you are, you are, you are. I am? 
in in the Buddhist tradition, particularly if you go to Asia, you know, so much emphasis is given to contemplating mortality. You know, I remember in my early years of practice, you know, being sent off to the the burning ghats and the and the burial ground. You know, just be close to death. Learn not to be afraid of this. Learn how this is me too, me too. It wasn't a morbid contemplation. It was really contemplations meant to, to dispel delusion and pretending and actually to focus our attention on what really matters. And in the process of waking up and embodiment, that the Buddha praises so much that the qualities of ardency and diligence, apamada, zeal, enthusiasm, passion, diligence, he says, just as all of the footprints of all living beings are surpassed by the footprint of the elephant, and the footprint of the elephant is considered to be the mightiest amongst all footprints, just so all ennobling qualities have zeal and ardency and enthusiasm as their foundation. And zeal is considered to be the mightiest of these qualities. I think sometimes we have some kind of strange distortions we've learned in our lives that you know I encounter people who blame themselves for illness or frailty. You know, it signifies that they've done something wrong. And sometimes we, we've learned to fear the disintegration of the body. Certainly learn to surround pain with fear. Very often we can find ourselves strategizing and hoping for a different future. We say this shouldn't be happening. But you know what? We could be the most mindful person in the world, eating only organic food, exercising religiously. And you know what? We're still pro prone to aging, sickness, and death. It might make the process easier might make the process a little bit easier, but it doesn't exempt us. I think it's also just so human to recognize that sickness and aging are not emotionally neutral. It's an ongoing lesson in loss. You know, I've, I've seen this with my aging parents, you know, I see, you know, with my mother who's 92, you know, um, you know, throughout her life, she was you know, he's such a warrior and, uh, you know, so well. And yet the last 10 years has been an ongoing process of losing, of losing things, of losing things, you know, losing independence. You know, she, she, a couple of weeks ago, she had a stroke and for a little time she lost her speech. And for, you know, a woman who's just talked so much her whole life, you know, to lose her speech was like, that, you know, this was the worst thing that could possibly happen. No, fortunately, it returned. But now she's losing her independence. You know, she's losing her mobility. Fortunately, she still has a lot of brightness. But isn't this a lesson of our life? A lesson of how to lose gracefully. In, but such an important lesson because we do see that in resistance and denial, we heap suffering upon suffering. And we dissociate and disconnect, not only from the body, 
but from the nature of life itself. I think that the habit patterns of judgment, fear and resistance that are formed in relationship to our own bodies become the habit patterns that are directed towards anything in life we fear or resist. Let me check this out for ourselves. What is our relationship to the difficult sound, to the disappearance of a lovely experience, to encountering an unpleasant sight? Do we react differently than to the difficulties we encounter in our own bodies? Probably not. Probably not. So we really see that in learning to embrace the body as it is, we're actually learning to embrace life as it is. Okay, so just a little bit more to say on this first dimension of embodiment to inhabit this body fully to integrate mind body and present moment inhabiting the body is more than just again the sensate sense it's also inhabiting the story of the body including the story of vulnerability of pain of illness and death written into each of our stories. How does it or how would that awareness inhabiting that story affect our lives? How would we embody that understanding? Would we become despairing, depressed? Or would we become more appreciative, more grateful? more sensitive, more equanimous? What does it teach us? Because this is the very understanding, the story of the body is the, is the very root, I think, of, of all ethics, of wise action, of compassion, kindness, appreciation. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha encourages us to, to contemplate the body internally and contemplate the body externally. I mean, in reality, many of us spend much of our lives contemplating the body, but often through the lens of me and mine, and often through the lens of aversion or anxiety. And the Buddha encourages us to inhabit this body in a different way, through different lens, through the lens of not me, not who I am, not I, and this is not a prescription for indifference or abandonment. It's actually an encouragement towards a greater sense of peace and equanimity and understanding. We see that the story of our body is reflected in all bodies, that all our actions, speech and choices are manifested and expressed through our bodies. And if we deny or dissociate from the body, we will enact those same patterns of dissociation in relationship to the story of all bodies. We become anxious, fearful, defensive in ways that can close the doors to compassion, empathy, connectedness, and kindness. I feel that appreciating and embodying our mortality and the mortality of all beings 
means that everything matters. And if this was our last day, how would we choose to live it? Our actions matter, imprinting, impacting so many. Ethics makes a difference. Every word and act of honesty, of truthfulness, of kindness makes a difference. Our speech matters with its remarkable power to harm or to heal. The present moment matters. It is actually the only moment we can live, transform, and know with some certainty. Our life matters. Perhaps it is only in embracing our mortality with compassion do we embrace our life fully. To share with you a, a poem by Jennifer Wellwood. It's called The Dakini Speaks. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed, as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she's only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise. Brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives up everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. This is a poem by Jennifer Wellwood. You can actually find it. It's available online. It speaks to this second universal level lesson we learn within the body. It's about change and process and the world of conditions. Body is process. Cells being released, cells being replaced. Change is happening. Have we noticed? Have we noticed? Dependent on the conditions of our life, our health can turn to illness in a moment. Strength can turn to frailty and frailty back to strength. And youth certainly turns to aging. It's a simple truth. Remember years ago when I was having a, a lot of dental work done, I, I went, I asked my dentist, I said, what's going on here? You know, why are my teeth falling apart? He says, your teeth thinks your body should be dead. This is a dentist with a sense of humor. And I thought, oh, it's, it's probably true. It's probably true. Studying the body carefully, we... We see that nothing is static or standing still. 
We have an appearance of a body that camouflages the reality of change. We know this intellectually as an embodied understanding. It is challenging. It is challenging. We know how little we are in control of those changes this last two years has certainly shown us that. We can't decide to have only pleasant experiences in the body. We can't decide to have only health and youth, stamina and energy. The body has a life of its own, constantly influenced by the world of conditions. And of course we contribute to that world of conditions. It's, but it can be hard for us to accept. We, we see this internally, we see it externally in the loss of those that we love, the pain in those that we love that we cannot take away, that we cannot take away. That, that is really difficult. I, I know when my, when my grandson was very ill with COVID and you know, we weren't able to go and, and care for him or, or help him, you know, it, it was such a moment to say, you know, I'm not in control of this world of conditions. You know, to be as fully present, loving as possible, but to know that we could not take that pain away. It's a simple truth. It's not negative, not positive. It's just the way things are. And certainly in contemplating this body, we learn to question the idea of ownership of the body. The body is me. If I was the body, or the body belonged to me, or the body was who I am, I would be doing a much better job than I'm doing. You know, if I was in control of all of this, I would really be doing a much better job. 38 years old is the age when a person looks in the mirror and begins to see their mother or father looking back. You know, 40 is the average age when most people begin to live with a, an illness that doesn't go away. We see in relationship to the body how much pain and sadness can be born, not only the uncontrollable changes that happen, but through our reaction to them. And the forerunner of those reactions is that this is me. This belongs to me. This is who I am. You know, the Buddha so much encouraged this contemplation of this is not me. This is not mine. This does not belong to me. And again, it's not a prescription for indifference or abandonment. It's a prescription for bringing distress to an end. So this is the first domain of embodiment, learning to be an embodied human being, inhabiting this body fully and learning the lessons that are offered. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.